namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa bhadang damang sangang namasami so I'd like to welcome everyone this evening. And can I just see hands of people who were not here the last time I came to Denver? And can I also see hands of people who this is the first time they've been to this group? And can I also see hands of the people for whom this is the first time you had a chance to be in a group where I'm talking? Okay. Thank you. So my name is Ama Tanasanti and I'm a Buddhist nun, and day after tomorrow celebrates the 22-year anniversary since I've been a nun. Totally amazing. And I've been meditating for something like 34 years now. I've lost track, or I can't count, or something like that. And I've been living in Colorado Springs, which is where I'm still residing, and I've handed out some handouts of stuff that are related to this class, as well as um, moonlight meditation vigils, which will be tomorrow night and at the end of the month. And then I'll be away for a few weeks and then back in November, and then sometimes it's a little bit cold in November to be going for a long walk in the Garden of the Gods, but we can play it by ear. Anyway, I've been coming to this group for a couple of years now and have decided to start a, a series on the four foundations of mindfulness and we're right smack in the middle of this series. So by way of kind of an introduction or a summary, the four foundations of mindfulness is, is one of the teachings that the Buddha gave which is really important. So of all of the suttas, of all of the discourses that he gave for the 40 years or so that he was teaching, this one is many, many, many scholars point to as like the most important one. If there is one that's the most important one, it would be this one, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And the reason why so many people point to this one as being like singularly important is because within it is contained a complete instructions and path about how to practice in a way to completely move from a world of sorrow and stress and lamentation and despair and pain and grief into a way of being where there's no suffering. And I don't know how that is for you, but for me, that sounds like a good idea. So listen up. Check it out. See if it makes any sense to you. Now, Matt was very kind and made some postings on Facebook today, but I wasn't entirely sure if we were going to be having a coming out party tonight or whether we're having a discussion on contemplating feelings, but whatever we're doing, hopefully we can have some fun. So the four foundations of mindfulness are based on contemplation of body, on feeling, on mind objects, and mind objects as groupings of Dhamma. And what is needed in all of these foundations of mindfulness is the ability to observe what's happening without getting stuck into a story around it. And so what we need to learn how to do is to train our attention to be present with what's going on 
and learn how to separate that from the loops and the thinking and the perceptions and the projections and the proliferations that happened around that. That quality of bringing mindfulness and clear attention, clear comprehension, is fundamental in all of these four foundations. And so last class was both an introduction to this discourse as well as a kind of an overview of the different practices that are involved in contemplating the body. There's the the contemplation, the exercises connected to the contemplation of the body. Uh, They're like, there are many. There's observing the breath, observing the posture, full awareness, the parts of the body, the elements of the body, and then contemplations of the body in different degrees of decomposition after death. That class that we had last time could have easily been spread out over four classes because the material was so dense, it was hard to get through it all in a way that was digestible. It was really a little bit intense, so my apologies for that. But I set this up so that we would have four classes on this topic, and so it made sense that one class would be about contemplation of body, the other would be about feeling, the third would be about mind objects, and the fourth would be the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So when we go into the progression, the first foundation is the contemplation of body, and then the next one is on feeling. So here we have this one is going to be the, the contemplation of feeling. So that last class, which was on July 27th, there's a recording of that on the Awakening Truth website. So if you're wanting to go back and listen, it's all of that is available. And I've got cards here if you want the website, and I think the website, it's on the bottom of this page as well. And I think the links to the talks, well, actually, no, they're hyperlinked and they didn't copy through here. So you'll have to go to the website and fiddle that out. But it's under resources or under teachings. It's under teachings. And under teachings, there's a section called talks. And so you can find that there. What this, all of this madness is about was because what I wanted to do was, in addition to just have these classes on Friday, was to have conference calls on Wednesdays twice in between each talk to talk about specific practice, how we're working with our practice related to each of these topics to give more time for question and answer and application and working with specific guided meditations related to each one. So the different things here are related to the conference calls and the topics and what's happening around that. So, you know, I'm glad this class tonight, the topic of feeling on some level is, you know, there's not so many different meditation exercises connected with it, so the material isn't so dense. And yet, what we are doing in this class is also beginning to open up, kind of like illuminating or showing, discovering a golden key. And we'll see if that golden key becomes more apparent towards as we work through some of this material. So, in the Buddhist language, in the Buddhist language of Pali, the word Vedana, which is what this is we're referring to, means both to feel and to know. And this word Vedana in Pali language has no association with emotion or the normal way that we use feeling in our contemporary English usage. It's a different feeling quality. It's just the specific quality of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. So it is, may not be obvious 
when we're talking about this, what is the value? You know, why is this so useful? How is it so helpful? Where is the power in being able to contemplate that? But we shall see if this will be explored or revealed as we open up this territory. Okay? I didn't bring the Majjhima Nikaya, this, the collection of suttas that this sutta is found within because it's this thick. And so I just copied out this section and had it printed here. So I'm going to be reading Tanisaro's translation of it. So this is the actual sutta itself, and it goes this way. And how does a monk remain focused on feelings in and of themselves? There is a case where a monk, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns, I'm feeling a painful feeling. And when feeling a pleasant feeling, he discerns, I'm feeling a pleasant feeling. And when feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he discerns, I'm feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling of the flesh, he discerns, I'm feeling a painful feeling of the flesh. And when feeling a painful feeling not of the flesh, he discerns, I'm feeling a painful feeling not of the flesh. And then he goes through and it describes the pleasant and neutral feelings both of the flesh and not of the flesh. In this way, he remains focused internally on feelings in and of themselves or externally on feelings in and of themselves or both internally and externally on feelings in and of themselves. Or he remains focused on the phenomena of origination with regard to feelings on the phenomena of passing away with regard to feelings, or the phenomena of origination and passing away with regard to feelings, or his mindfulness that there are feelings is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance, and he remains independent, unstained by, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a monk remains focused on feelings in and of themselves. So, this is the language of the sutta. Now, how did it land? What's your sense? When I first heard this, it was like trying to digest cardboard. You know, it was like, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is so powerful. I don't see the connection. The language is not exciting. It's not poetic. It's like, what is this all about? And so, for myself, what has happened over the years is the recognition that when we actually take this and put it into practice, when we understand what this language is pointing to and use it as an application with how we are bringing attention to what we're experiencing, then this cardboard starts transforming into radiant jewels. This turns into a golden key. This becomes a gateway of liberation that is really hard to get from just the reading of the words. Part of the reason why this is so incredibly powerful, and this is an ingenious method of directing awareness, is because the very first stages of likes and dislikes before the onset of reactions, projections, or justifications set in about how we feel is the key to unlocking the wheel of suffering. 
So suffering and how the wheel of suffering is perpetuated is based on desire. Wanting things and not wanting things. And spacing out around things that we are not actually being present for. Okay? So desire is the kingpin that has everything to do with the cycle of suffering either going in a motion of forward or if we're relating to our desire in a skillful way of not perpetuating. Check it out. You know, what are the things that you like? And when you like something and you see it or you feel it or you think about it or you smell it or you taste it, what happens? For most of us, when we like something and we want it, there's an initial sense of grasping, of wanting to hold it or to get it or to possess it or to have it. Is that true for you? And if we experience something that we do not like, the initial experience is of resistance or aversion or irritation or impatience. We want to get rid of it. We want it to go away. We want it to smash it. We want it to kill it. We want it out of our space. We want nothing to do with it. The initial response is push it away. Okay? Check it out. All right? So what this is doing is rather than engaging in the reactive mechanisms around what we're experiencing, it actually focuses our attention on the quality of pleasant, unpleasant itself so that we can get a little bit of a handle on. We've got a crowbar inserted in precisely the place where our reactive mechanisms are the strongest. Right there, okay? That place ends up being the most powerful place for stopping the cycle of suffering, all right? We don't need to wave a magic wand and have desire disappear. We don't need to not feel wanting or not feel not wanting. What we need to do is to come into a new relationship with these things so that we are not being driven by our habits and our patterns and our conditioning when this stuff arises, Okay, So if we have no other perspective, then it is completely natural. We want what we want. We don't want what we don't want. That's obvious. But when we have a perspective that we can actually focus on the quality of pleasant and unpleasant, then what happens is, is that there's another opportunity that opens up. And that opportunity is the opportunity to observe wanting, to observe pleasant, to observe unpleasant, to observe not wanting. And in observation, we have choice, whereas in direct reactivity, we don't have choice. And when we have choice, we've got power. So oftentimes what happens is is that there is a contact, and then there's a feeling, and then the feeling triggers a whole bunch of response mechanisms around it. Okay? Thoughts, associations. And we get lost in the thoughts and associations and we lose contact with the actual direct experience itself. But when we're able to bring attention to the direct experience itself, when we're actually able to watch the mechanism of these desire patterns or habit patterns arise in mind but not engage in them, watch what happens. Check it out. Watch and see what opens up in your possibility of how we can then react or live or be in the world and the kind of choices that we have. Now, oftentimes what happens in, a, in any kind of a context is that people tend to listen to things and make it really oversimplistic. 
And so there's an absolute white and an absolute black, and there's no gray in between. And so one misinterprets the teachings to say that desire is bad and anything that's pleasant is not good and we need to get rid of the whole lot. And this is not at all correct, and this is not at all what the Buddha was teaching. Okay? So in the situation where we have pleasant feelings, it's also really helpful to recognize that there's all kinds of pleasant feelings that are not only wholesome, but extremely beneficial to cultivate. The pleasure that comes from concentration, from integrity, from generosity, from contentment, from renunciation, these are all pleasures that are extremely beneficial to cultivate. So it's not just that we're saying we're wanting to get rid of pleasure. And in this way, the Buddha was radically different from some of his contemporaries at his time in the way that he understood the relationship with pleasure and the importance of seeing the cultivation of certain aspects of it. Now, when we went back to the sutta, when it was talking about pleasant and unpleasant connected to the flesh and to not to the flesh, what that's all about, because it's like, what on earth are you talking about? You know, pleasant sensations that are connected to the flesh have to do with any pleasant experience that comes through our sight, through our hearing, through our sound, through smell, and through bodily contact. And pleasant feeling that comes not through the flesh has to do with experiences connected with generosity, with integrity, with concentration, with renunciation, with contentment. Okay? So the things that are developed or experienced as a result of you know, what we might use in a loose language as spiritual qualities that bring about pleasant feelings, these are non-flesh-based experiences. They're not worldly experiences. And yet they're still pleasant. Okay? And so it's important just to get a sense of what that languaging is referring to and then how important it is to cultivate that. One of the reasons why this whole thing about pleasant feeling is kind of interesting to contemplate was because in the Buddha's time there was the understanding that if one created pain for oneself, then one would be ripening unwholesome karma that one had done in the past. And so there was this idea that the more you tortured and punished your body, then the faster you would progress spiritually. And, you know, what was Buddha's realization is, is that this absolutely is hogwash. It doesn't work. And that the more you punished and tortured your body, the weaker your body was and the less you were able to develop in a spiritual way. And so this prevalent view was dismissed, Okay. And so it's not about creating painful situations for us to endure. It's about coming into a right relationship with pleasant and unpleasant and understanding the nature of how these things arise and how we are identified with them. When we look at unpleasant feeling, we can see that unpleasant feeling has its kind of the tendency is to activate irritation or impatience or aversion or resistance. And we can see how we experience that in our own bodies. You know, how do we feel? Okay? This aversion can lead to wanting sensual pleasures. As because from most people's understanding, the sensual pleasure is the only way that we know how to deal with and escape from pain. And so the movement from pain to pleasure and then wanting more pleasure creates a cycle which is both addictive and relentless because we can't get out of it. 
And so when we begin to get a sense of this is based on a wrong understanding or wrong relationship with pain and pleasure, then this is another kind of crowbar into the addictive patterning that we have around moving towards pleasure and wanting to move away from pain. And so when you read people who have gone beyond pleasure and pain, when you read their writings, it's just staggering to watch the way they are able to stay unmoved in the face of pleasure and pain. They absolutely don't move. And I was thinking about Upasaka Ki is one person who has attained to that level where she's beyond pleasure and pain. And she nails right on that point that if there is any movement towards these things, then you are bound into the cycle of suffering. And when I was reading it, it was just really, wow, you know, the kind of the precision of her language and the relentlessness of her clarity reveals lack of clarity. That's really hard to do. For most humans, we can't do that. We can't. No, no, I agree. But what was interesting for me is, is that the kind of freedom that opens up when that actually is possible. And so while we don't need to beat ourselves up because we're not there yet, for me it was kind of a illuminating and a kind of joyful thing to recognize that when you practice in a way that leads to this kind of liberating insight, that that is the result. No ego. Absolutely no ego. So, okay, we've got pleasant feeling, which tends to cause desire, and we've got unpleasant feeling, which tends to cause irritation in patients. And then we've got neutral feeling, which tends to stimulate ignorance. And for most of us, what happens with, with neutral feeling is, is that we space out. Now, I don't know about all of you guys, but I have a real strong tendency to a drama queen, you know? And so there's the sense of, like, I can locate myself if I'm extremely happy or miserably depressed, but if I'm just even keel, I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So for me, a lot of my life was to squeeze things so that I could find extremes, so that I could locate myself, and it didn't actually even matter if I was miserable, because miserable was more familiar than not having a place to locate myself. So it's been a long training to recognize, one, the habit to move towards extremes and to release myself from that habit and to begin to feel comfortable with this neutral territory, which ends up being most things. So interestingly enough, you know, we've got eyes and ears and nose and mouth. We can smell and we can taste, we can touch, we can hear, and we can feel things. The way our nervous system is wired up, it's only our physical body that's got a kind of wiring around pleasant and unpleasant. Everything else is highly conditioned about the what we feel about it. So what we think is pleasant or unpleasant from what we see is very much based on our conditioning. It's not wired into our systems. Okay? And so pleasant, unpleasant is only possible. That's the, those two are where we don't really have neutral in the physical world. But with all of the other senses, we do have neutral. Okay? And neutral ends up comprising like most of life. You know, There's a lot of neutral. But because it's not exciting, it's not depressing, because it's not possible to locate yourself in neutral, then for most of us, we totally miss it. So because we're totally missing a large portion of our life, then life ends up becoming kind of like monochrome. 
you know, there's very little that we're actually present for because we're only present for these kind of like the extreme positive and the extreme negative and we're not catching these more neutral areas. And then for myself, when I started to wake up to neutral, I began to get a sense of, you know, not monochrome, but full color and a sense of, you know, the of potential of fullness and a potential of intimacy with all of life, not just a sense of, you know, contentment and joy when I was feeling great. So one of the things that happens when everything is pleasant is we feel, yeah, that's it. You know, I've got it right. My meditation is going well. When things are pleasant, it's like, yeah, I've got it sorted. This is the way it's supposed to be, you know? And when it's negative, we think, you know, I've lost it. You know, I'm having unpleasant experiences. I've lost it. I've lost the path. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going on. Because what happens is, is we totally identify and take personally the quality of pleasant and unpleasant. And when we can begin to understand neutral and have more feeling and relationship with neutral, then it helps us come into a better relationship with pleasant and unpleasant. Because neutral ends up being much more stable, much more consistent. And as a result of that, it's both harder to see that it changes as well as stabilizes some of these other kind of uppy-downy kind of things that we're experiencing all the time. So this kind of summary of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, you know, I'd be curious when we get to the discussion part of things is to get a sense of if you can have a feeling now of the brilliance, the ingenious nature of what these instructions are. Because what to me sounded like cardboard at the first rendering becomes like a clear path to be able to see the magnificence of what happens when in every experience that we're having, we can take it into something as simple as, is this pleasant, is this unpleasant, or is this neutral? The whole complexity of our life can be carved into three baskets, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I don't know about you, but for me to have things that make things simple oftentimes is really a relief, you know? Because sometimes it just feels so unbearably complicated, you know, that it's like not possible to figure out how to deal with it. But when it's simple, then I've got much more resource on how to deal with it. So when something is horrible, when it's unpleasant, and I just focus on the unpleasant nature of it, then it gives me some scope for understanding how to relax around the resistance, around the not wanting, around the irritation, around the aversion. When I see something as pleasant and then there's hope or longing or expectation or sense of, oh, things are going great, then I can focus on the pleasant quality of it. Then it gives me some perspective on just making some space, stepping back and letting go, letting it be, watching it without identifying it. And when something is neutral and I'm spacing out, then it gives me some interest to show up, to be present, to engage, to see what's actually there. And in just doing this, then enormous complexity resolves. And all kinds of ways in which suffering will manifest and perpetuate its stuff is either checked, slowed down, stopped, or reversed. So check it out. Is this of any interest? Any applicability? Does it seem like there's some place in your life where this will make sense? 
So I'd like to pause here and have a couple minutes break, come back and do a guided meditation, and then we will have a discussion afterwards. Okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.